The dark and macabre have intrigued us for years, but are their bewitching powers waning? The old greats such as Poe, Lovecraft, and Hitchcock have long since passed into the void. The masters of the 1970s like James Herbert and George Romero are gone. Stephen King and John Carpenter are in their twilight years. So where does that leave the current state of horror? The future is bright and author Thomas Gloom hopes to unveil this truth by discussing the genre's past and present. Settle back, get comfortable, and remember to leave a light on as you enter into the gloom. Cults have fascinated me from an early age. Larson's book of cults has been sitting on my bookshelf since I was in middle school. I've always been drawn to the psychological and the horrific, and cults are where those two tend to kiss. People like Jim Jones, Charles Manson, and Marshall Applewhite presented the world with real-life terror and death. But luckily, the world of fiction offers us a number of gems to help us process the insanity and loss. On today's episode of the Into the Gloom podcast, I'll be interviewing my spooky friend and fellow horror author, Brianna Morgan. Join us, dear listeners, as we discuss the cult horror literature and films that have managed to entrance us with their peculiar ways. Welcome, Bree. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am good. I am good. I'm really excited about this discussion. And, you know, when, when you brought this up, when I asked you for a, a theme or a topic and you brought this one up, I have marked this on my calendar since. And I'm just, I'm, I'm excited to be here doing this. Me too. I'm definitely excited. As you're well aware and listening to past episodes, I don't do the whole spiel of introducing the author and rambling off all of your accomplishments. I kind of like for that just to come out naturally as, right. as we chat. So I just want to move right into things and something a little bit different on this episode. Usually I save a lot of the listener questions that I get for the end or maybe mm -hmm. deeper into the middle, but I want to start today with a listener question. And okay. that question is, Brie, are you as awesome as you appear to be? <laughs> oh man, a tricky one right out of the gate. Uh, <laughs> um, short answer, no. Uh, you know, social media is a highlight reel. So there's a lot that happens behind the scenes, a lot of mess, a lot of chaos that people don't see but I really appreciate that. And um, yeah, I'm glad at least somebody thinks I'm awesome. Yeah, I, I had a nice little chuckle when, when I saw that come in and I was like, oh, what a, what a perfect opening here. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard hitting one right, right away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now that you've been, on, you've, you've been put on, on the hot seat, maybe the, the rest of this will just seem like, like a breeze for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So we're going to be talking about cult horror, and I want to ask you, what is it about that subgenre that draws you in? I have always, like you, I've always been interested in cults. Um, I just, I don't know what it is. I think it's the idea that, you know, you can take these seemingly normal people and, you know, they 
they meet the right kind of charismatic leader. And then all of a sudden they're willing to do things that maybe they never would have thought about doing before, just because this guy is telling them to do it. That fascinates me. Um, it's, it's kind of like a true crime subgenre too. I'm a big true crime fan. So, you know, they, they feed into each other. Yeah, for sure. You know, as I mentioned in the opening, there's a lot of psychology involved whenever mm -hmm. you're talking about cults. And I really appreciate the fact that depending on what sort of mood I'm in, I can sort of go the true crime route, the historical route mm -hmm. and listen to a podcast or read a book or watch a documentary about a real life cult. Mm -hmm. But I can also switch and find stories about cults within fiction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's not there aren't a ton of subgenres with that sort of overlap. Right. Um, you know, like I, I can sit here and watch the, the, the blob movie, but I don't really have anything, you know, from real life that I can focus on. Maybe, maybe I can look at, at, at sludge, you know, coming from some, some factory or something like that, but it's not yeah. quite the same. <laughs> right. I mean, maybe like a book on aliens could be close, but I, I don't know. I don't know for that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really unique. Do you, do you even remember the first cult horror movie or book that you interacted with? Oh, um, I don't think it was the earliest one, but the first kind of cult media I, I remember really sticking with me was, um, Jonestown, mm. the whole Jim Jones mess. Um, I heard about it. I think I heard about it on it was just one of those specials that was on, I want to say the history channel or something like that. And I was like, what is this? And then I just started watching and, you know, I didn't learn a lot of the details until maybe a few years ago. Um, but I was like, I want to say I was like 14 when I learned about Jonestown, which is mm. maybe a little young. Yeah, absolutely horrific. Mm -hmm. um, and like you mentioned earlier, just terrifying the way that normal people could be controlled mm -hmm. now you know the with with the whole jonestown thing being fairly contemporary you know we've got video we've got recordings of jim jones and you realize that he was captivating he was charismatic mm -hmm. and he knew it and he mm -hmm. used it and utilized it and i think that this happens a lot in cults but you know, with the, the history of Jones, Jonestown, especially its beginnings, it's even more heartbreaking the fact that he seemed to prey on the marginalized. He mm -hmm. preyed on immigrants. He preyed on the poor mm -hmm. um, and, and really sunk his teeth in and gave people hope. Hope mm -hmm. that they'd never had before. Hope in the, you know, maybe the, the picturesque experience uh, ideology that they had of what the the happy American life was supposed to be. They hadn't experienced it yet, but he gave them a promise. And it, it, it's, it's horrific how it turned out, but he mm -hmm. was so abusive, so abusive, even from the start, just his mm -hmm. sermons and whatnot. There was a lot of, you know, spiritual abuse going on. You know, now we realize that there was, you know, a lot of mental and physical abuse going mm -hmm. on too. Mm -hmm. 
But, you know, stuff like that is not easy to forget. And I, I, I think that's why it has stuck with us and why, you know, even even now, even today, years and years, decades later, we still have documentaries coming out. We still have podcasts coming out. We still have TV shows being made about the Jonestown massacre. Yeah. And I mean, even the phrase it's not, you know, it's not technically correct, but even the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid, like people use that all the time and they don't even know that it's a reference to Jonestown. So I just, I think that's wild. Yeah. Uh, two years ago, I think maybe, maybe three years ago, I listened to the series on Jonestown that the guys from last podcast on the left did. Oh, I love that. I love that podcast. Yeah. That, it's haunting. They play the whole tape. Yep. And they go in such depth. And I think that the most shocking thing for me was near the end, you know, they are there in Jonestown and here comes a U.S. Senator. Mm -hmm. And I just, I can't imagine the terror that was instilled in the American public to know that a, a U.S. Senator wasn't even safe from mm -hmm. the, the the terrible effects of this cult right and you it know, was he, so much worse than everybody knew yeah yeah wild wild i think for me the the first cult that i remember hearing about was the manson family mm -hmm. it wasn't until you know more recently a, a couple years ago that I understand the full extent of it. I've listened to a number of podcasts about it and going back to, you know, Charles Manson's early days when he was trying to get into the folk music scene and, and whatnot. And a lot of the interactions and connections that he had mm -hmm. with famous, you know, pop culture icons is, is really astounding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And once again, you know, going after people that were just searching for hope, looking for a way out of their predicaments, looking for a better life. And he reeled them right in. Yeah. He was a master emotional manipulator for sure. Yeah. And even, I think that the difference with him in comparison with Jim Jones and, you know, Marshall Applewhite and individuals like that is, you know, many times they, they went down with the ship, mm -hmm. but Charles Manson, he did go to prison, but his fame continued to grow and his fandom continued to grow while mm -hmm. he was in prison. And that to me is once again, even more scary because it, it, it's scary enough when these individuals can control people when they're face to face, but right. to be able to, you know, have, essentially be deplatformed, but mm -hmm. still have that sway, still have that control. It's, it's terrifying. And really in, in terms of the, the days that we are living in now, we, we see hints of that in, in American politics. And mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a bit frightening. It's a bit disheartening yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. When you first requested this theme for our discussion, we talked about the importance of making time to nerd out about the Wicker Man movie starring Christopher Lee. Yes. Can we do that now? Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's let's do it. I actually, I, I rewatched the movie last night 
to, to do a little bit of research and to refresh my memory. And this is one of those movies that for me, it doesn't get old. And I continue to find new things about it that I love. So what, what are some of the things about this movie that, that keeps drawing you back in? I know that you had mentioned to me that you, you, you watched it just this past summer once mm-hmm. again. So what, what keeps drawing you back? So my, my partner had never seen it before. And I was really eager to show him that version before. Like he accidentally stumbled upon the Nick Cage version. God yeah. forbid. Like I can't, I can't let that happen to him. I love him too much. So I had to show him the original. And I think what, I don't know, what keeps drawing me back is that I feel like the more time that passes, the kind of more absurd it is, um, especially, you know, the, the idea of the super religious, super uptight, straight white cop. And then all these people just like, you know, exper- expressing this different religion. And he's just like, I can't have this. This is a, an abomination to the Lord and all this. I just, I don't know. It's, it's over the top without really being over the top, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, I, I it, think that it could, it could go, it could go haywire pretty easily, but I think the acting is so, so good. It's one of those movies that, yeah, like you said, it's a, it's a movie of its time. Mm-hmm. And I think that when it came out, um, it was probably perceived very differently. Yes. Yes. And when Mrs. Gloom came into the room last night and I was watching that, <laughs> I was talking to her about that and just how I have such mixed emotions when I watch it now, especially with this viewing last night, because mm-hmm. here you have, it's presented as there is this crazy religious cult that live on an island and they do human sacrifice and and do all these strange things they're supposed to be the bad guys and here comes the good guy but he is this uber conservative Mm -hmm. white male who is engaged to be married and he is just so over the top and not only his religiosity i mean he's he's also a virgin that's important yes yes that is important that is important and but also not just in his religiosity, but also his need for control and mm-hmm. power. He's bossing everybody around and just acting like the fact that he has a badge, he can do whatever he wants with mm-hmm. no recourse. And once again, in today's society, we look at that and it's like, Ugh, yeah, yeah, this is a big problem in society mm-hmm. today. And here we have this guy who I believe that when this film was made, he was supposed to be the good guy. He was supposed to be the protagonist. Mm -hmm. But when I watch him now, I I feel that he's kind of a bigot and he's very bossy. Yeah, it's weird to watch now because it's like the way I see it. Well, for most of the movie, obviously, I, I don't approve of them lighting someone on fire and whatnot. But like it's it's just people who live a different lifestyle and they're not we don't think at first that they're necessarily hurting anyone. So his reaction is pretty strong, especially, you know, it does come across as bigoted now. And um, I know we're supposed to root for him, but sometimes I'm just like, dude, like, calm down, calm down. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. They're just different from you. That doesn't mean they're wrong. Um, But then they do very much burn him alive. So maybe, maybe that cancels that out. (laughs) Yeah. You know, he, he uses the words, 
heathen and pagan as if they are <laughs> filthy, disgusting words. Yeah, and he uses them a lot and very publicly. He's not like, you know, he doesn't like t- take people aside and talk to them about their behavior. He just starts yelling heathen when they're doing their little maypole ceremony and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, and it, it really stood out for me when he walks into the classroom. Yes. And there are all these young girls that they're they're in there. And the teacher is, she's talking about this, you know, May Day ritual. And mm-hmm. she is talking about what the, the maypole represents and that mm-hmm. it's the phallic symbol. And essentially she's giving them a bit of sex education mm-hmm. and he cannot handle it. And he tries to take control of the situation and essentially say, I am a police officer and I am saying you cannot teach these kids this. And I actually, I like her pushback, the teacher's mm-hmm. pushback, because she's like, um, sir, are you not a police officer? Are you in control of what is taught in a classroom here? Yeah. And, like, and so, I like her in that yeah. moment. Yeah. Yeah. She, she pushes back on it. And so in that moment, I was like, yes, yes. Um, it's interesting too, when you're talking about when this film was made and, and some of the stuff that was presented in it might've been shocking or unheard of at the time. But Mm -hmm. I think now and what we see, especially here in America today, you know, I, I love how you, we, we have this, this Uber conservative Christian, he comes to town and these people know that they can easily get him to slip up by putting a young girl in front of him. Or, mm-hmm. you know, in today's society, it could be a young boy as well. Yeah. And it, it's just this, this idea that he, he has suppressed his emotions. He has suppressed his sexuality. Mm-hmm. He suppressed all of these things. And he's constantly lashing out against other people that are, you know, really maybe more free in mm-hmm. these areas. And, and it, it comes off, at least to me, that he's, he's not so much lashing out at them as he is lashing out at himself for not being right. able to have that experience that they get to have. Yeah, all of his like violent outbursts and emotional explosions come from a place of self-hatred, I would say. Yeah. And we see that a lot. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. many over and over we see these, you know, politicians Mm -hmm. or 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 pastors or priests who are very outspoken, maybe in their, you know, homophobia. And they are the ones that get caught with a little boy in a hotel room. Yeah. Yeah. That's always how it happens. Yeah. And, and so I, I, I get a lot of those vibes um, from, from this movie, but the way that it starts out, I really, I, I, I appreciate what was done there because, you know, it starts out with this, this plane flight, this, this plane, it's flying over this land, it's flying over water, it's showing this beautiful, idyllic, um landscape and there's this upbeat happy folk music playing Mm -hmm. and it's almost like you are being as the viewer lulled into this false sense of security everything is is happy and bright Mm -hmm. and then as the story continues you realize that there is darkness lurking right around the edges Mm -hmm. like i love the hints i noticed this more on recent watches, but the hints that, you know, they are having issues growing food because, you know, everyone's eating out of cans and there's, there are no apples. Like, like he even, he's like, there are no apples on this Island, which I think is wild out of all the food 
that's the one he calls out but yeah it's it's interesting you can kind of see hints of what is to come before the big the big twist at the end yeah exactly he has that first meal and he's complaining about you know why is all this stuff coming from a can mm-hmm. i think that the power in rewatches with this movie is that the more you rewatch it the more you pick up on the hints mm-hmm. that something is awry mm-hmm. and it starts right at the beginning Mm-hmm. and it carries throughout and I love that that for me is that is a movie I can rewatch. that is a book I can reread when I'm constantly picking up all those little hints that mm-hmm. in previous reads or previous watches I didn't even pick up on right right and um it's it's almost I mean it's a shame that the remake was so bad because I feel like there would be a way to do it now and do it really well like if say Ari Aster picked it up um, I'm sure he could make it great, but the Nicolas Cage version is just not it. Yeah, I agree. The The remake was atrocious. It's, for me, it's one of the worst remakes of a horror film I've ever seen. It's it's right on up there with the remake of The Fog for oh me. Oh my God. <laughs> so bad. So bad. Um, so I, bad. Think, I think the remake is one of the worst films I have ever seen, like full stop. Like, not even worst horror film, worst remake. It's one of the worst films. It's up there with, like, Jason X and Freddy versus Jason for me. It's bad. It's, it's bad. bad. But, you know, I, I like that you, you, you bring up Ari Aster because I, I love his directing. Um, me too. Hereditary was fantastic. And I, I love all the layers, but once again, it's, it's a cult film. And then instead of completely changing course, he comes out with Midsommar, which yeah. is another, you know, uh, a religious or spiritual cult film. And for me, I take it as his love letter to the Wicker Man. To me, mm-hmm. there are so many connections that I believe it I, I view it almost as a not not a remake, maybe, but a reimagining of yeah, the man. I can definitely see that too. Midsummer is one of my favorites. So I I've watched it a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. And I I like that you can have this horror film that is so bright and so happy and joyful, mm-hmm. yet once again, just like the Wicker Man, there is darkness that is hiding just around mm-hmm. the corner. Yeah. That takes skill. And, and I think I think what makes that movie so effective is, you know, you you side with Florence Pugh's character and you kind of see her her growth and her evolution as she gets drawn deeper into the into the cult. So I don't know. I I really like that movie. <laughs> Yeah. And, and once again, I think that there is a, a similar thing that, you know, obviously the cult, they are murderous. They are, you know, the, the, the quote unquote bad guys. Mm -hmm. And then you have these, these friends coming in. And once again, I think that we are maybe supposed to feel for these, these young people coming in, but just like the cop and in the wicker man, you have this boyfriend who is just 
abusive and he's a gaslighter mm-hmm. and you you it, it's hard to fully feel bad for the things that are happening for him it almost feels right. like justice but then you find yourself like wait no like am i supporting burning people alive now yeah yeah it, it's very strange that i mean that movie i feel like if you watch after you watch that one the first time you need to lie down afterward just to process it because mm-hmm. it will make you feel a lot of confusing things at least it did for me yeah same with hereditary it was mm-hmm. the same thing after that you just sort of sit there maybe pick your jaw up off the floor and ask what yeah. did i just watch what am i supposed yeah. to feel right now <laughs> <laughs> you know my my love for cult horror and the the films and and books it really fueled me into my own writing mm-hmm. you know my my debut novel the window is at its core, it is cult horror. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of this, it's a slow burn and you get little bits and pieces of it, but you don't really pick up on that fact until you're, you know, well into the book, you know, about, mm-hmm. about halfway through. But I've realized now that I've, you know, published that and it's, it's been, been out there for, mm-hmm. for over a year now, reflecting back, I can see the influences and, you know, The Wicker Man, Midsommar, hereditary to a point they all played a role in that and it just it it makes me it makes me smile because I'm a big believer in you know easter eggs and callbacks Mm -hmm. and you know giving 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 shout outs to influences yes me too yeah we'll get to that here in a minute (laughs) when we start talking about your your novella that just came out. <laughs> um, is there anything else that you want to say or any 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 cult horror movies or, or books that you want to discuss before we move into talking about your own works? Um, I mean, I have recommendations, but I, I don't really want to go too in, too in depth with those because I will spoil them accidentally. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, when we when we get to the end of this episode, I will ask you for some recommendations. Okay, um, I'll so, save them. Yes, yeah. All, <laughs> and all you listeners, you know, have have paper and pen ready. Let's talk about your work for a bit. Okay. But before we discuss your newest release, I need to say a few things about your deliciously frightful short story collection from the end of 2020. Okay. I I found this book through Kindle Unlimited and I I got it and I read it and this was before I knew you or knew who mm-hmm. you were. Yeah. And so it was I I think for me it was it was pretty cool to have gotten a a view of Brianna Morgan the writer, the mm-hmm. author before getting to know, you know, Brie the the person. Right. It was a little peek into your mind. Um, and so th- th- it's, it's a short story collection. And the opening story, it has a line that I resonate with. You wrote, watching a movie she'd seen more than a dozen times soothed her ragged nerves. Mm-hmm. For me, that's very personal. Um, I, I have that same experience. Is it the same for you? Like, it, oh, this- oh, yeah. Um, I, we joke that like, I watch the same three movies. I play the same three games. I just, I find comfort 
in doing things that I have already done before. And it might be an anxiety thing. I'm not sure, but um, even just having like, you know, a movie on in the background that I've seen before while I, I like read stuff on my phone comforts me. Yeah, I am very much the same way. And my wife is the same way as well. And we typically, if we're falling asleep, watching a movie or having a movie on, it's always Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, that first one. Yeah. And it's just, it's just, it's, yeah, it's comforting. And we know it so well. And if we're not watching it, usually I'm, I have the audiobook uh, playing Jim Dale's yeah. narration. Oh, yeah. Of it. Oh, it's so good. It is. It is. But now in the spooky season, we have been falling asleep more to Hocus Pocus. Oh, that's another good one. And it is, it's just, it's so comforting. It's like a, 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 a warm blanket. And yeah, during the, the spooky season, the lead up to Halloween, I also just love having horror movies on in the background and yeah. I'm usually not sitting down and watching them. You know, it's just, it's on. Yeah, me too. When I, when I lived with my parents, like way back in the day when we had cable, I would just turn on the TV to AMC's Fear Fest. Mm -hmm. And that, that's actually how I discovered a lot of my favorite horror movies. They would just be on in the background and I'd catch, I'd catch bits and pieces and I'd be like, oh, I kind of want to sit down and watch this now. Me too. Me yeah. too. So can I ask, what, what are a few of these movies that you can just rewatch over and over and over? I have, again, my partner makes fun of me because I have, I have like a, a ritual. I have like Halloween rituals. So I have a ton of movies I feel like I have to watch every year. Like Pet Cemetery, Trick or Treat, Carrie, Cujo, Cabin Fever for some reason. I don't even really like Cabin Fever, so I'm not sure. I think I just... Like I saw it at a weird age and it's, it impressed itself on me. So now I feel like I have to pay tribute to that. <laughs> um, what else? The Fly, a lot of found footage, but that's because I love found footage. I watch Paranormal Activity pretty, pretty regularly. <laughs> um, usually Candyman, but I just watched that with my patrons not too long ago. So I, I probably won't watch it again this year. Yeah, those are, those are some good ones. And I can definitely relate to, you know, what you said about cabin fever, um, just it, you being at a, a, a weird time in your life or a certain time when when you watch it, because I have a lot of those movies, too. And for cabin fever for me is one of them. Like whenever I watch cabin fever, I think of living with my dad in Alabama. He had, you know, he, he'd always lived, uh, my parents were divorced when I was like two years old and I always, mm -hmm. I grew up with my mom, but when I was a junior near the end of my junior year in high school, my dad moved to Alabama and was just, you know, a few miles away from where I lived. And so mm -hmm. I moved in with him my senior year. And there are a lot of movies that I saw for the first time in his living room, in that house. And I can just, I, I just have all these fond nostalgic memories um, all tied up in, in it. And um, you know, he had, he had all those movie channels, HBO and mm -hmm. Cinemax and you know, all that stuff. And right. so especially around the spooky season, there were just all sorts of scary movies and I could just flip through and find one and just settle mm -hmm. down. Did you ever watch those? I'm pretty sure it was on AMC and maybe like VH1, those countdown shows like you know top 100 scariest movie moments 
Because I used to watch those all the time. I don't remember those. They're on YouTube now um, in many different pieces, but I was exposed to a lot of horror movies through that because it would show like one of the scariest scenes from the film. And then I would be like, okay, I need to watch that film. And Cabin Fever, that's actually how I heard about Cabin Fever because they had the, the leg shaving scene. Mm. And I was like, what is this? And then I watched it and I was like, I still don't know what this is, but. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> movie is, I watched it. it's pretty gross. <laughs> Yeah, it's gross. And I don't, I really don't like Eli Roth. So I'm not, I have no idea why I keep watching it. I I don't even know if I enjoy it, (laughs) to be honest. Yeah, I've never seen any of the Hostel movies. Um, I'm not, I'm not big on what I term torture porn. Yeah, me neither. It's just, it, it doesn't really relate to me. Um, I I remember renting from Blockbuster. I rented fear.com. Oh, and it's essentially just torture porn. And I was like, what is this? This isn't scary. Like, I just I, I just don't like it. <laughs> yeah, it's just yucky. Um, I tried watching uh, The Green Inferno the other day because I was like, OK, I, I just feel like it's time for me to try it. And I turned it off maybe like 20 minutes in because I was like, it's just you just don't need to do all this. It's just too much. See, now that is that is one that I I could enjoy um but i'm also a sucker for those types of movies like i love apocalypto it's just so crazy and over the top did you like cannibal holocaust have you seen cannibal holocaust i haven't seen that one now i'm familiar with the uh the 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 actual animal cruelty that took place in that but i haven't actually watched it yeah i i've watched it once or twice um but then i found out about the animal cruelty and now i just can't watch it it's ruined for me so um but that you might like that not the animal cruelty part but <laughs> yeah yeah no but it, i don't think you would sim- enjoy that but the rest of it yeah i i hear you the similar vein of like you know this tribes in the middle of nowhere that don't have contact with the outside world mm-hmm yeah, that's that stuff's it's interesting to me. And, you know, with the I really like the first Saw movie yes. and I wouldn't categorize categorize that as torture porn. There is a story. There is mystery. I love the reveal at the end. But then from there, it sort of turns into torture porn with the the next installments. Yeah. I mean, parts of Saw are gross, but it's not gross for no reason. Right. I feel like everything that happens and saw like oh you know it makes sense as opposed to like a movie like green inferno where you just like immediately have someone getting dismembered and you don't even have time to like get to know them like you didn't, yeah. you didn't need to do that right it's like oh, i don't care why do i care yeah and it got to, i mean it gets to a point where like you know if you're trying to be so so shocking the whole time it gets to a point where that gets old and super super gimmicky at least to me yeah yeah i i feel the same way So I've got one more line from the trick-or-treater and other stories that I'd like to share. Okay. And here's the quote. An hour later, saw her dressed and pulling fresh cookies from the oven. The smell filling the house like a bug bomb, albeit a delicious one. (laughs) I see you laughing. And I know that I've I've mentioned this this quote to you before, but I want to ask publicly now. Mm-hmm. What possessed you to cross the wires of death-inducing fumes and the delightful aroma of cookies? <laughs> um, I I had an atomic bomb, but it felt too aggressive. 
So I like pulled back. But honestly, this is so weird. It's the kind of thing that my fiction workshop professor in college would have hated for me to do. So I kind of did it like out of spite. Um, I don't hate him. He, he was a great professor and he's one of the reasons that I can write books at all. Um, but yeah, I, I was like, you know who would hate this? Peter would hate this. So that's, <laughs> that's why it's in there. So it wasn't, it wasn't a middle finger to your professor, but it was a middle finger to maybe some of his guidelines. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, having to write literary fiction in that program was not, I was not thrilled about that. Um, and parts of Trick or Treater feel literary, but then obviously it takes a turn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I like it. I like the the jolt that just that line brings. And once again, I, I think that it is, it's good foreshadowing for what's to come. Like, eh, you know, this this might feel comfy, but don't get too comfy. Yeah, yeah. okay so let's shift gears and talk about your newest release mouth full of ashes i got an advanced copy of this novella and i've got to say that it was an absolute joy to read and you're welcome you're welcome thank you for giving me the opportunity to read it early and you've, you've mentioned that this book is like your love letter to the Lost Boys, but queer. Yes. And I couldn't agree more. It oozes with campy goodness, yet there is a realism that keeps it all from going off the rails. This story, it also has a ton of heart, which is something that I personally appreciate. And this following quote is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. You wrote, probably because she'd never let anyone she'd kissed get that close to her feelings. It was far more intimate than it ever should have been. Callie was usually quick about shutting that shit down. It was better not to get attached. She'd learned that after her father had walked out on them all those years ago, all the good ones left. I discuss similar issues of of loss and trust Mm -hmm. in my novel, Voodoo Child. And Mm -hmm. when people have been hurt, the temptation is to shut down and build up walls. Right. Aspects of Mouthful of Ashes, they feel very personal. And am I reaching here or did you put some of your own life experience into this spooky tale? Uh, I mean, yeah, Callie is not... Kelly is not me. Um, she's, she's very different from me, but I've definitely experienced loss before. And there is, you know, that tendency to, you know, you put your walls up, you don't want to get hurt again. So you kind of turn things off or repress other things. Self-protection, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that moderation and balance are, are key because sometimes that can be helpful to be mindful of your feelings and not just to be so open and, right. and so trusting that you set yourself up for mm-hmm. hurt. But then on the flip side, if you just completely shut down and build up those walls and you never let anyone in, I don't think that's healthy as well. No, no. But finding that balance is, is key. And so I like that you brought that out in this story. I'm one for, you know, I like to have a good time when I'm reading a a story, when I'm watching a movie. I like that fun factor, the Mm -hmm. adventure, but I also like the 
the genuineness, the honesty when it comes to, I want to be able to relate to the characters. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to relate to the human experience. And Mm -hmm. so when an author brings that out, I instantly appreciate it. And so, yeah, I just, I want to say that I appreciate that you, you brought that out in this novella. Thank you. It is, it's always important to me that I write messy characters and I've gotten pushback before, like, for example, in my play Unboxed, the protagonist is extremely unlikable. And I've gotten reviews where people are like, oh, I I didn't like him. So, you know, two stars. But the thing is, you don't have to like a protagonist to feel sympathy for them or to enjoy what they're, you know, the story. Um, And I think that, I think that it would be more interesting if we had more messy, flawed characters. Yeah, it's definitely more realistic, right? Yes. We all have flaws. We all, you know, make mistakes and and we're not monoliths either. You know, you can't mm-hmm. just put everybody into a box because people are unique, people are surprising. And I mean even even the worst kinds of people, the people mm-hmm. that you just can't stand, if you're honest with yourself, there are going to be things in, in their life that you can relate to, even if maybe you don't agree with how they go about getting that or achieving that you can, you can at least experience some empathy if if you're willing to be honest with yourself. Right. Right. You mentioned messy and (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm going to use that as a, a funny little segue here, but this book is not something that I'd consider to be splatter punk or too violent. Mm-hmm. Yet you chose to open with a horrific car crash and even a decapitation. Yes. What went into that choice? When I sort of started envisioning the book, it was one of the first scenes that popped into my head. And it was just so vivid that I knew I had to include it. Um, at first, it was part of there's a section where Callie talks about waking up from a nightmare. And it was that was the nightmare. And then I, you know, I don't really like dream sequences, even if they to add to the story. So I wanted to take that out, but I didn't want to lose the scene because it is gross and, <laughs> and uh, helps set the tone for the book. So I moved it to the front and um, yeah, it's, it's tough because I haven't been in a car accident that bad, thank God. But having to picture what that would feel like and then, you know, the panic of not knowing whether the other people in the car with you are okay. That's what I try to convey the most in there. And I hope that comes through more than, you know, the gore aspect. And, and it does. I, I think that it really, it sets some high stakes, but it makes sense for, especially Callie's character and the decisions mm-hmm. that she makes as the story goes on. Mm-hmm. It makes more sense when you know um, the, the history and the familial ties that are involved mm-hmm. here. So yeah. I, I, I like it. I think it I think it fits. I think it sets the tone because, you know, the first after that scene, those first few chapters, they are they're more positive and more more happy. And I think that if it started without the car crash scene, you could have possibly lost people in those opening mm-hmm. chapters because they might believe like, you know, ah, what, what is this? I, I'm, I'm yeah. picking this up because I want to be scared. Right. And so that that keeps people hooked because there's plenty there are plenty of scares to come. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I didn't I definitely didn't want to lose people at the beginning, but I knew it wasn't going to be all all doom and gloom right away. Well, and I I also think that your cover, 
does a killer job of setting that stage. And so hopefully people wouldn't get that idea. But I think that regardless what we do as artists, whether it's with our blurb, whether it's with our, our cover, um, you know, we need to be mindful of reader expectations in those first few pages or first few chapters of any book. Right, right. I mean, oftentimes um, I've even heard that, you know, agents know within the first five pages of a book, usually if, if it's going to be a hit. Yeah, I, I want that superpower. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so something else that you did well in this book was inject tidbits of vampire lore without it coming off as ham-fisted or awkward. Mm -hmm. Most of it was, was framed as if the protagonist was reflecting on what she'd seen in fiction. Mm -hmm. The Lost Boys, True Blood, and other pop culture vampire references were made. And I quite enjoyed, as I mentioned earlier, all those little Easter eggs. Mm -hmm. So here, here's an example, listeners, of, of what I mean. Here's a quote from the book. In fiction, vampires had super strength and super speed. If she tried to get away, even if she managed to break free and start running, he was going to catch up with her. He was going to hurt her. So what was the point? I just love how natural this feels. It's clear that you have a love for the vampire subgenre, which is a great lead in for another listener question, which is this. What is your favorite vampire book? Oh God. Oh, that's a, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, I, I, part of me wants to say Salem's Lot, but I, really it's Dracula, the original, because it, I read Dracula when I was in eighth grade for the first time. I read it in the middle of October. I remember, I can remember sitting outside at, at school on one of the picnic tables, like, on my lunch break and reading it and just like I don't know it's so good it's just so good and it it's fun to see how that created this whole subgenre and this whole vampire boom I guess from from one person's book yeah I love that I you know I'm such a sucker for nostalgia and mm -hmm. I mean it, I couldn't help but smile and feel warm and fuzzy when you're talking about you remember what grade you were in, you remember what season it was in, mm -hmm. you remember where you were when you were reading this, because I have those memories tied up, whether it's movies, TV shows, books, mm -hmm. even certain songs, certain albums. Right. And it's, I, I just love getting to relive some of those memories, some of that nostalgia. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, that that's cool. And that was, I mean, eighth grade, is that what you said? Uh, yeah, I think so. That is props for getting through that book in eighth grade. <laughs> I had I had just read Frankenstein, so I was just trying to devour all the like classic horror I could at that point. I actually just read Frankenstein for the first time this year, and I haven't seen the original movie either. We're going to be watching that either this week or next, my wife and I. But so I, I went in just knowing about Frankenstein from a pop culture perspective. And that book subverted so many of my my thoughts and opinions on what I was about to read. And I really, really loved it. Yeah, it's it's a great book. Mary Shelley is she was a genius. And 
I love that this this tiny like early 20 something woman just invented science fiction essentially. It's awe inspiring. The fact that I mean it's just so layered. The time in which she wrote a story like this and then as you mentioned just the fact of being a woman in that mm-hmm. time, being a young woman in that time and for her to not only think of a story like that, but be able to put it down on paper and to capture what she did and then to release it to the world. Like I I can't imagine the types of hurdles that she had to face to get that out there. And here we are, you know, years and years later, Mm -hmm. decades later, still talking about this. Mm -hmm. And I think that a hundred years from now, people are still going to be talking about Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. Yes, yes. It's awesome. (laughs) Looking back at Mouthful of Ashes, it's a story infused with a varied mixture of lustful desire, sweet tenderness, and romance in its many forms. And this following line in particular was a standout for me. You wrote, in all honesty, she felt tipsy, although she hadn't had any alcohol. She was just drunk on Elijah. That's really just the tip of the iceberg, though. You also wrote a sex scene that spanned a few pages. You didn't just, yes. you know, hint at it. I mean, you you went right into it and you get you gave details, you stuck with it. And in recent years, it seems like sex, which used to be a staple in the horror genre, has been used less and less. Mm-hmm. Did you have any trepidation with including that scene? Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was nervous. I've written sex scenes before, but not in anything that I have shared publicly. And it, it is, you know, I used to write YA. So going from young adult to adult where it's like, you know, no fade to black. We're just going in, going into it. I was a little worried um, of how it would how it would be perceived because, you know, as, as the author, you have one vision for the work and you have one intention, but you can't really control how it is received. So I was very nervous about that. I was nervous. I wanted to make sure I was doing it right in terms of representation. Um, Luckily I am a queer woman, so I didn't have to, I didn't have to, you know, go out and poll people or anything like that, but I just wanted to make sure that it fit the story. It was respectful and it, had the right tone, I suppose. Mm. I think you captured it. You know, I can, I can only give my perspective, but as a, a straight cisgender male, I didn't feel that it was trashy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that there, there, there's plenty of lustful desire in this, in this book, but that scene in particular even though it was steamy, it was hot and heavy. Overall, to me, it came off as sweet. It came off as tender. And there was more love at the core of it. And mm-hmm. I think that for, for the arc of Callie's character, mm-hmm. it came at the perfect time. And it really, it set some things in motion that were going to be very important as the story moved forward. Right. Thank you. So yeah, uh, props to you for putting it out there and not shying away. You know, I've 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 mentioned in in our 
our horror group that we have going on Instagram that, you know, I, I put a sex scene into my upcoming novella, the potted plant, but I, I got nervous and I shied away. I, as you said, I sort of faded to black with it. Um, But, but you've given me a lot to think about moving (laughs) forward because I do, I think that sex scenes when they are done right in, in a horror novel, they can really up the stakes. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think that that's important because, you know, like we were, we, we touched on it a little bit talking about the you know, torture porn. Yes. And if it's just torture for the sake of torture, it doesn't mean as much, but when you mm-hmm. get to know those characters, when you understand their motives, when you realize all of the emotions that are, that mm-hmm. are tied up in it all, it can make that torture um, much more important. It's just, it's not just a, a gore grab. Yes. It's, it's something that you as the reader can feel. And so, you know, if, if the store, if it's right for the story, I think that sex scenes can do that. And I just, I'm, I wonder why, and, and maybe you have some thoughts on this, why it seems that in the, in recent years that people have shied away from it, because when we look at our culture as a, as a whole, and, and we look at movies and we look at TV shows, um, they haven't really shied away from, from sex. It, it seems like many have even embraced it more. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think the, the, horror, the horror literature ha- has shied away from it? I think, you know, sex in horror, especially horror literature, has always kind of been fraught. There's a lot of assault, unfortunately. There's a lot of just weird sex scenes just weird in general um i i think of you know there's the scene in it that's like it's not really (laughs) does that have to be in there and i've definitely read books that i've like had to put down before because i was like okay there's assault here and there doesn't need to be it's just for the shock value Mm -hmm. essentially um and i don't like that and i think people have started to realize that that's not okay and instead of just like scaling back because they're afraid i think they just completely avoid it. Um, so I think it's, you know, people need to sort of realize that it is okay to include sex. You can include sex without tying it to violence. If it's properly motivated, I think it's fine to be in a story because people have sex, people are sexual. Um, and you know, with horror, it really helps, like you said, up the emotional stakes. So I would like to see more of it, but right now I think it's just, people are kind of afraid to include it. And I mean, as a, as a writer, it is very scary to include that because obviously like I don't write romance, so I'm not used to writing public sex scenes. So I think there's, you know, that aspect too. I agree with everything you're saying. And it's a bit of a dichotomy because on one hand, it's good that people are realizing that, you know, just throwing sexual abuse into a story for shock value, um, probably isn't the best route to go but Mm -hmm. it's also sad that for many people it it seems that like we we struggle to separate um abuse from you know love and Mm -hmm. and 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 tenderness and sex but i mean even you know lustful desire it it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be violent um and and so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. There, there, there are pros and cons here, but 
you know, overall, it would it would be nice to to see people, you know, easing back into that without using it for shock value. But, uh, you know, if if your character is is falling in love um, or if your character is feeling those strong emotions, you know, don't Mm -hmm. don't run from it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is it is very scary. It feels like kind of it feels like being caught with your pants down. Or being yeah. naked in public, but I'm mm-hmm. also glad that it's in there because I, I feel like it serves a story. And, um, you know, Stephen King is always a big believer of not holding back. So I'm trying to embrace that a little more and be be braver in my work. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's interesting. You know, I was just I was just having a conversation with someone yesterday just about Stephen King and that, you know, he does. He he embraces that idea of don't hold back you know, just, just write, write it. Sometimes it's a mixed bag, you know, because we can all, we can all think of different scenes that King has written that make us cringe. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, there are other things that he wrote that he was taking a risk, taking a chance and it landed. It was powerful. It was groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. It's tough. It's tough because I think that we live, we live in an age, we live in a time where I think as creators, we can be scared of the blowback or the, you know, you can call it what you want, mm-hmm. maybe cancel culture, where mm-hmm. there's an idea of, of, of being angry, being enraged. And some of these things are, you know, they're perfectly fine to be angry and enraged about. But what I struggle with is when that, that rage, when that desire to cancel or to censor comes without a willingness to dialogue. Um, I, I think yes. that that's where we get in into it for, for me, areas that make me a little bit uncomfortable when it comes to writing, when it comes to censorship and, right. and how it can paralyze us as creators. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've gotten at the, at the beginning of trick or treater and at the beginning of mouthful of ashes, I, um, I'm mindful. I include trigger warnings for different subjects because I know, you know, sometimes it's hard for people to face that. And I've gotten, I've gotten a lot of positive reception to that but I've also gotten some blowback saying that you know horror shouldn't have trigger warnings and whatnot but it's like the way I see it at the end of the day if I help one person if I can keep one person from being re-traumatized then it's worth whatever critique comes my way because I know there's certain stuff that I read that I wish I had been warned about or certain things I see that I don't get warned about and they just like re-traumatize me and I don't want to do that do that to anyone I want them to resonate with my work not you know be so terrified about it based on a real experience they've had it's interesting but once again i think that having these conversations is important mm-hmm. because i know for me my perspective on trigger warnings it's a little bit different and i think a lot of it is because of my personality and my likes i am very much averse to spoilers mm-hmm. um i've gotten to where like for instance, I love the Halloween franchise, but the newest trailer for the, for Halloween Kills, like I won't watch it because I'm scared that too much is going to be spoiled. I feel like too many trailers just spoil movies, but I I feel that sometimes with trigger warnings, if you put all of those into um if you put it all out there, it can be a possible spoiler Mm -hmm. but on the flip side like I totally understand where you're coming from as well and and, you know maybe the answer is 
putting the trigger warning um, in the back of the book, you know, maybe having a little word about it in the front and saying, hey, you know, flip to this page if you want to read the specifics. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe that's like a, a happy medium. But I I do think it's important to have the conversation because right now it seems like there are the two camps, those that think, you know, like, like, like you said, if you're reading horror, then why are you so easily offended? You should expect this stuff. But then there's the other side of like, no, you know, horror should be a big tent and anybody should be welcome. And mm-hmm. you shouldn't have to tiptoe around the genre because you're, you, you never know when a rape scene is going to pr- masquerade right. in front of your face. Um, and I think that the more that we can dialogue without just shouting our own perspective, the closer yes. maybe we can get to some sort of happy medium where everybody can feel happy. Everybody can feel welcome. Yes. And I, I do think someone asked me the other day if trigger warnings are something I'm going to include in all my books that I self-publish. And I definitely think I am um, just because like I said, I want to help people out and mouthful of ashes. I did a little differently than trick or treater because trick or treater, there's like a whole separate page just for trigger warnings. Um, Mouthful of ashes. It's a little more hidden. It's in the the copyright on the copyright page. So if you don't really know it's there, you won't go looking for it. That was kind of my solution to potential spoilers. Um, I also try to be as vague as possible while still being helpful. So for instance, like one of the triggers was teeth. What about teeth? Just teeth. If you have anything weird with teeth, just look out. (laughs) Yeah. And for those that do have a thing with teeth, that's all they need to know is teeth. Yeah. I mean, I don't need to be like, you know, person growing fangs or whatever you it's fine that's all you need but it it is tricky and I I agree with you I think we really need to have conversations instead of just you know when there's opposition just shutting down completely and not listening to the other people yeah you know and I I think that Mrs. Gloom is one of those people that for her all you have to say is I stuff and she'll be like, nope, okay, I won't read this book. I won't watch this this movie. <laughs> I'm the same way. I hate eye stuff and bone stuff. Like, just don't. I, I'll watch it, but I hate it. So. I, I can agree with the bone stuff. I actually, uh, ugh, I initially, I started going to a community college. And um, I was going to study to become an x-ray tech. And it took one semester of, of an anatomy class um, that was focused on, you know, inter, uh, x-rays. And I realized that on a daily basis, I would have to be dealing with broken bones. And I was like, nope, I can't do this. I can do like gore doesn't bother me. It can be gory, you know, eye stuff. None of that bothers bones. me, but there's something about bones and the cracking of bones. I've never broken um, a bone, like I've dislocated both of my pinkies before from, from skateboarding, but that's as bad as it gets. And to me, like if I ever broke, seriously broke a bone, like I would just, I'd pass out. Like I wouldn't feel the pain. I would be so grossed out. I'd be, I'd be blacked out. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've broken, I broke two toes and I broke this arm twice and it's terrible. And (sighs) I I am equally as afraid of bone stuff as I was before that happened. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? There's a lot of broken bones in my stories just because that is what scares me personally yeah yeah before we move away from discussing your own writing i've got one more listener question to ask you write in many experimental formats which was the most challenging and why 
Un Unboxed has been the most challenging, not because of the format, because I, I like writing plays, but more how it's received. Um, I have, I know a lot of people will not read Unboxed just because it is a script, because they have negative associations with like reading Shakespeare in school and stuff. So that's kind of hard. There's like a weird stigma about scripts. It's difficult as an author to hear somebody dismiss something just because of the format, but I, I know it happens and people have preferences, but Unboxed felt like to me a story that had to be told that way. Um, and I think it's a story worth telling. So I wish more people would give it a chance. I think that once I've heard from many people that like once they get into it, they don't even notice the play format anymore or that, you know, it's easy to lose yourself in it. So I would like to see more people pick that one up. I originally wrote it anticipating that in the fall of that year that people would be performing it, but obviously we don't, we still don't have theater. So it's tricky because it's meant to be watched rather than read. Right. And that's hard. That's hard to convey. I can relate to what you what you were saying, how some people feel. I mean, you know, if I had the choice to watch a movie or read the script, I want to watch the movie. Yeah. Um, or read a novel or read a, a, a play script. Like I'm always going to choose the novel. Yes. But for me, I love watching plays. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if if Unbox was performed, like you bet I would I would make sure to watch it because that's another thing that I feel like horror has a lot of history and early beginnings in, in drama and in, yes. in, in play drama. But nowadays you don't see a lot of that. No, there aren't a lot of horror plays, um, which is part of why I wrote it. And it's the kind of thing like I would enjoy watching. And I really hope that sometime soon it does get produced, but you know, the world. Yeah. The world. Yeah. Like, <laughs> are we ever going to get back to normal? <laughs> it's, it's a mess. It's a mess, but someday. Someday, yeah, someday. We got gotta have hope. <laughs> I've gotten to see my other play touch my one act play produced, and that was that was a great experience to see an audience's reaction to that in real time. Yes. Now, did you were were you sort of undercover getting to watch people's reaction, or did did people know that you know the writer of this play is here? So the cast knew, um, I think some people in the crew knew, but there, they did two nights of performances and the first night they didn't introduce me or anything. And then the second night they were like, we have the play right here. And they pointed at me and I thought I was going to burst into flames just because it was like, it was like, please don't look at me. Literally, it's one of those moments where like everybody turns and I was like, oh my God, I want to die. <laughs> And I stood up because I didn't know what else to do. But then they start talking and I'm like, do I sit down? Do I stay standing? Um, and they had a talk back the second night. So it made more sense for them to introduce me because I was going to be talking to everyone afterward. But yeah, it was it was fun. It was fun that first night watching and people not knowing that I was there. I think yeah. they were a little more candid. Yes, that's great. That's cool. So did you did you get to sit like in the back? I was like kind of in the middle. Okay. It was a, it was in a black box theater and it was um, not quite in the round, but it was three sides. So Cool. Let me ask one more question before I take you to the carpenter shed. Okay. And this is actually, I've, I, I know I said that that was the last listener question, but then I forgot. 
I have one more. Oh, and okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it, I think it's an easy one. <laughs> but the, the question is simply, who is your favorite author? Oh, God, that's not easy. <laughs> uh, it's never easy. Ooh, I go through phases. I feel like I'm a, um, I'm a binge watcher and a binge reader. If I find one book I'm super into, I will go through and read like everything that author has written. Yeah. Um, and right now it is Nick Cutter. He wrote The Troop. Yeah, I just read The Troop and it shook me pretty badly. So I've, I've gone through it and I've, I've requested from the library every single Nick Cutter book that I can find. And there aren't a lot, but I'm, I'm looking forward to going through those. Other than him, I would say um, Gemma Amore. She's my kind of insta-buy author. And she, I was also lucky enough to have an honor to have her blurb unboxed. So she, she has a special place in my heart. She's, she's very good. That's great. Yeah. She's definitely on my radar. I haven't, mm -hmm. I haven't read her yet, but I have a couple of her books on my TBR. Yeah. And... If you need recommendations, let me know. Cause I've read, I've read everything of hers. Okay. All right. And with Nick Cutter, I have, I've only read the troop from mm -hmm. him. It is the only book that I've ever read that gave me a panic attack and I had to put it down. I almost had a panic attack. And I was talking about that too. I was telling my mom about the book. Cause I was like, you would hate this. It's gross. And it's, it's very uncomfortable. And I was like, I, you know, I was reading it at night before bed and I got to one part and I was like, I can't read this before bed. This, this has to be a daytime book from now on because I was just so tense and I was sweating and shaking. And I was like, this is not, it's not good. Not good for bedtime. <laughs> now I'm interested if if it was the same scene. Um, I don't want to spoil anything, but I, 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 I will say this. One of my greatest fears in life is surgery. The thought of being cut open is it's that horrifying. scene. Okay. It was that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was I oh actually God. listened to the audiobook of this and I was oh. out on a walk. It was last fall. I remember it. I remember the sidewalk I was on and there were dead leaves on the ground. And I just, I, I felt my, my chest tightening and my, my throat closing up. And I was like, I have to pause this. Mm -hmm. Have you ever read Unwind by Neil Schusterman? I haven't. Oh my God. There's a scene in that. So the idea is that um, the the pro-choice and pro-life people can't reach an agreement. So they have kind of this weird policy put in place where before your kid reaches, I think like 15 or something, they can be retroactively aborted. Um, yeah, which is horrifying in and of itself, but then they describe it as, so they don't, they don't kill you and then take your, like they take your body parts to repurpose them, but they don't kill you for that. You are alive the entire time. You're conscious. They keep you conscious. They keep your mind going as they take you apart piece by piece. And there's a scene where it happens and you experience the point of view of the person who's getting unwound. And I, I almost threw up. <laughs> yeah, it's that's... not even graphic, but I'm just like, this is the worst thing I have ever heard. So I like, I want to tell you to read that one, but I also <laughs> don't want you to read it. If that makes sense. Yeah. It's so well done. That, that I don't, I don't know if it's I can hard. handle that because it's not just surgery for me, but it's also what's even worse than the thought of surgery is the thought of, and, and people have experienced this where like the anesthesia 
wears off or it's not working correctly, but it's to the point where you are still completely paralyzed. You can't move, you can't speak, but you are consciously aware of what's going on. Yeah. Maybe, maybe stay away. Maybe stay away from that book. Actually, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Um, The only other book to make me feel, I mean, it's that book, the troop made me feel like that. And then uh, bird box by Josh Mallerman. There were a few scenes in that one that I was like, Oh my God, I can't read this at night. I haven't read that yet. Um, I, I have seen the, the film and I really, I liked it, but I want to read the book. The movie's okay. The book, the, the dread that you feel reading the book and not being able to see things, obviously, because it is a book. I think it, it really ratchets up the tension. Cool. Did you know that going back to Nick Cutter, did you know that he has written under a different name as well? No. Have you ever heard of the Saturday Night Ghost Club? No. Check that out. Um, okay. I, I believe it's his legal name. I don't know. It might be another pseudonym, but it's Craig Davidson. Okay. And that sounds familiar, but that's just under- like a generic name. When you, I think when you see the cover, you'll probably recognize it because it's, it's been around. I've seen people talking about it on Bookstagram, mm-hmm. but you'll understand too, if you read it, why he didn't write it under Nick Cutter, because mm-hmm. Nick Cutter is sort of known for being very visceral. Um, and this book is more of a coming of age mm-hmm. sort of tale. And it's a lot more lighthearted and it's more fun. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's got Stranger Things vibes. Okay, good. All right. Well, let me take you to the Carpenter's Shed. Um, every guest I have on here, I, I bring them into the Carpenter's Shed and simply ask what their favorite John Carpenter film is. So, Bree, what, what is it for you? I, I hate to be this person, but it's Halloween. Yeah. That's me. That's me. Uh, last year I actually won Spirit Halloween had some kind of Instagram contest where they were giving away like a 4k Blu-ray remaster of Halloween and I wanted it so bad and I won it and I was so excited like the day I got it I had to watch it right away and it's so crisp and it it looks parts of it look really good parts of it don't but it's very good if you get a chance just to watch the 4k Blu-ray remaster you should yeah I have the the box set that came out, um, I don't know, probably five or six years ago, mm-hmm. it was when the whole, you know, the the legal battles with part five and six yeah. had been um, taken care of. And so this was the first time that the entire franchise, mm-hmm. um, including the Rob Zombie films, could be put into oh. one box set. Yeah, so, I haven't seen I, I haven't seen past three and I saw half of the Rob Zombie remake, but. That was it. I'm not a Rob Zombie person. You should make time this spooky season and watch Halloween 4. Okay. The opening, I, I talk about this all the time. I love it. I mean, the movie itself is, it's it's great. It's it's fun. It's definitely mm-hmm. fun. And it's it's a return to Michael Myers, you know, after part three, which I, I love part three as yeah. well. Three is good. It's just very different. Yeah, yeah. The opening of part four it's just, it's this montage. The, the wind is blowing. It's fall. There are dead leaves everywhere. And it's just shots around this rural farm. 
area. And there are some Halloween decorations up. There's a lot of hay and tractors and pumpkins. Okay. And it's just, to me, it is the most Halloween vibe I've ever seen in a movie. And it's only like a minute and a half of it, mm-hmm. but it's perfect. It's perfect. Okay. I'll, I'll definitely check that one out this year then. Good. <laughs> But yeah, so the the original Halloween, you know, that is not just my favorite John Carpenter film. That is my favorite film of all time. It is just, it's perfect. I mean, for for me, and and you know, Haley Newland will will agree with this. Jamie Lee Curtis, Laurie Strode, her character so in that good. movie, so she good. is the final girl to me. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love that she is. She is an outsider, you know, even when she's interacting with her friends, she is just, she's different Mm -hmm. and she's a little bit, it's, it's funny because she's complicated in some areas. There's a little bit of maybe some arrested development, but then in Mm -hmm. other areas, she's much more mature, right? But her sense of protection for those kids Mm -hmm. is astounding. And to me like that, that is what a final girl should be not just strong in herself and willing to protect herself, but willing to do whatever is necessary to protect others, especially the vulnerable children. Right. I mean, that babysitting job, that's not what she signed up for. So (laughs) it's, she's great. And obviously there are so many like tense moments in that movie. They're so good. Like the closet scene with the hangers and it's, yes, it's just so good. I don't know the what soundtrack. else you would like. It's perfect. I love John Carpenter's soundtracks. Mm-hmm. And that soundtrack makes the film. I'm a super nerd when it comes to that movie. And so, like, you know, I've I've read articles about it, interviews, all the documentaries. And one thing that Carpenter talks about is that when he was first shopping the movie around, it didn't have the soundtrack and people hated it. It's not scary. Like this is lame. What is this? But then he added the soundtrack and everybody's tune changed. Yeah. It really does make a difference. There's a podcast about the making of Halloween. Have you listened to that one? I don't think I have. I think it's called, Oh God. I think it's called in. I want to say it's inside Halloween, but that might not be right. They also did one. They did psycho and jaws like where they break it down. Um, and they, they did one for Halloween. It's a few years old. If I can remember, I'll send you, if I can find it, I'll send the link to it and maybe you can put it in the show notes. Cause it's, yes. it's very mm-hmm. good. They do, they break it down. They cover like, you know, the, the script process, the acting, the casting, the reception and all of that. So it's very good. Cool. That, that is right up my alley. Um, film was my first love. I almost went to film school actually. And my best friend is in film school. He lives in LA now and he attributes me to instilling that love for him to get into it because of all the, you know, the silly, scary movies that we would make in high school. Yeah. I minored in film. So we, we have to nerd out about film sometimes. Okay. Awesome. (laughs) The other thing, before we move away from, from Halloween, I'm really big on suspense and building dread um, I, I think that the scariest moments in, in a movie 
are when you get to that door and you know that something horrific is behind the door, but it's reaching toward the door and slowly opening mm-hmm. it. And maybe it's just complete dark and you don't see it. That to me, that is the scariest part. Once you see the bad guy, once you see the monster as, as scary as the mask might be as horrific as the beast might be, it, it changes, it mm-hmm. changes. And the mystery, I guess is, is gone, but Halloween right. What John Carpenter did in that movie, all the just the little hints and, you know, I mean, you first see Michael Myers and he doesn't even have the mask and you just, you know, you you, you see him from behind, you see mm-hmm. him from the neck down. But even when he gets the mask, you know, the first time that you really see the mask full on is when Laurie Strode is in the classroom and she's looking out the window and she sees him, but he's across the street. He's behind right. the car. There are, you know, it, it's, it's, there's a distance and it's mm-hmm. just, you know, you, you can make him out a little bit, but he's still this shadowy guy. And, yeah. and for me, the, the fact that Carpenter was willing to stretch that out, which I feel a lot of directors just don't have the balls to do that anymore. Yeah. Um, Cause it's all about, it's all about cheap jump scares now for the most part. Yes. And the, like, even there are a couple jump scares, you know, quote unquote in that movie. Yeah. But for me, it's, it's the slow turning up of things. For instance, after the closet scene when, or no, before the closet scene, when Myers is in the shadows and then he slowly moves forward and you just, you slowly see his mask. Yeah. Uh, it's not just a jump and he's there it's a slow revealing and then her slowly walking forward it's perfect yeah there's in the new Candyman. um there's a moment that's like that where it's it's like completely silent and there's no like loud music or anything it's just like it's one shot and you can see Candyman's just like standing in the background and i'm like oh my god i hate it i hate it but i love it on on my birthday which was last week my my wife took me out to see any movie I wanted to see. So we saw the the Candyman mm-hmm. remake and um, or I guess not a remake, but continuation mm-hmm. sequel, I guess you can call it. But there were so many complaints, all the complaints that I saw about that movie, or I shouldn't say all the majority of the complaints that I saw for that movie was one most of the kills take place off screen, which mm-hmm. once again, we've talked about torture porn. Like, I, yeah, you don't have to see all that stuff. It can be just as scary. Like use your imagination, folks. Yeah, There's plenty I, of stuff that happens on screen. And also Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You don't see any of that. And it's yep. terrifying. Yep. So there was that, which I didn't mind it at all. And like you said, I think that there was a balance. There was there was plenty of gore oh, um, yeah. on screen. But then the other thing, you know, people just said that, like, ah, it wasn't really scary. It wasn't scary. What I think they meant was there weren't a ton of jump scares. But that movie, once again, the foreboding, the suspense, I think mm-hmm. it was masterfully done. And I appreciated that. Yeah, I much prefer a slow burn. I mean, you can tell from reading my work, I'm much more interested in the slow burn. Yeah. All right. So allow me to take you by the hand. We're going to leave the carpenter shed and go into the king's corner and i want to ask you what is your favorite king book and why oh no um god i it's so fraught because it's it and it's so fraught because of that one scene Mm -hmm. in the sewers 
And it's like, every time I reread the book, there's some, there's some part of me that just like forgets that or blocks it out. And then I get to it. And I'm like, oh God, I can't say this is my favorite King. I can't say it. But the rest of the book is just so good. The fact that he builds like this, this saga that takes place over decades and you really get a sense of the characters and what their stakes are. And I listened to the audiobook the first time I experienced the book and it was narrated by Steven Weber, who is mm-hmm. amazing. He does such a good voice for Pennywise and everything. And I just, it seemed to come alive a lot more. I have also loved like every it adaptation, even though I know that's divisive. <laughs> um, I think they, each one has their merits for sure. Yes. The first it adaptation with Tim Curry scared the shit out of me when I was a kid, like just on TV. I remember the scene where they, they have the photo album and then the picture moved. That messed me up so bad. I think I was like 10. Um, yeah, and it's it's not it's not that scary if you watch it now, but it's it was very scary in my formative years. So I would say it is probably my favorite. Um, my least favorite, is, my least favorite is The Shining. Um, okay, I know, I, know. I know, I I like this answer. Let's hear more about this. Uh, I like the movie a lot. I don't like the book because he goes on a lot of tangents in the book. Um, you're in Jack's head a lot, and it's really jarring when Jack starts to have the the breakdown mental breakdown it was really hard for me to follow what was actually happening versus what he was imagining happening and that kind of took me out of the story yeah a lot a lot of flashbacks too Mm -hmm. Um, Um, which which i don't mind if they're properly motivated but it just felt i don't know it felt kind of scattered in that and i i I know from it yeah i know from it that he can do flashbacks so i think that's why it's it frustrates me more than anything is i'm like you can you can do this why didn't you just do the same thing but I mean, a lot of people love that one. I just, yeah, not for me. I hear you on that. It, it could be, you, you get a little bit of whiplash. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I mean, it, The Shining is definitely in my top 10, at least for King. I do like it. There are a lot of moments that were great. Um, but I, I definitely hear what you're saying, um, especially with Jack. Um, though Wendy is so much better in my opinion, in the novel than mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, I was just, I was talking to someone on Instagram yesterday about that, who wasn't aware of what went on behind the scenes with oh. Kubrick and Shelley Duvall. And so I was yeah. you know, trying to explain Wendy's character in that movie. It is, it's not Shelley's fault. And anybody that has seen her in anything else, you know, will realize that instantly it was more, Kubrick and how he wrote her and how he directed it. And the fact that, you know, he was so abusive to Shelley Duvall in that movie that, you know, by the end of shooting, I mean, her hair was falling out. Yeah. She, he was know, terrible to everyone on that shoot, except for the kid who played Danny because yeah. he was a minor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Be, yeah, exactly. He legally couldn't be a shit to him. Yeah. Um, um, it, it is unfortunate. I think the movie's very good, but. I will say that Wendy in the book is what kept me reading the book because I was like, she's awesome. And she really evolves from like this quiet, like, you know, I don't want to upset my husband. I don't want to set him off. I don't want to get him in trouble. She goes from that to like this badass woman who will do anything to protect her, her child. Yeah. She's a bit of a final girl. Yeah, she is. And the movie does not present her that way at all. Yeah. But yeah, in, in, in terms of the movie, you know, obviously they're, 
there's stuff that happened behind the scenes that, you know, I think we can, we can all agree was shitty, but in terms of just the film, you know, the, the, the soundtrack is great. It's exactly what it needed to be, but the cinematography is amazing. It's astounding and it still holds up. It's one of, you know, those movies that I I think as time goes on, it's going to continue to hold up. Mm-hmm. And um, Jack Nicholson's acting is just bar none. Yeah, it's it's excellent. Yeah, but yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, I'm I'm glad that you know you might you might feel like you 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 picked a um, a simple choice or the the easy go to choice with John Carpenter. But like I said, I agree with that too. But I like I like hearing some hot takes in terms of, of King. So what, yeah. what I'm interested in is someone to come on here and say that their favorite King novel is from a Buick eight. <laughs> or like for, oh, Ro- I hate Rose it. matter or something. Not that Rose matters bad or like, uh, I met someone who said their favorite King was the girl who loved Tom Gordon, which is I've, a I've strange heard that choice because it's very different. Yeah once again yesterday you know I I posted all those questions looking for people's hot takes so it led to a lot of conversations heated conversations yeah I I love that in dms but one of them was you know like what rose matter is great because it's it's one of my bottom kings um but for me it's like if if I want that 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 strong abused female character who overcomes the odds and and gets gets justice like I'm gonna read Dolores Claiborne Oh yeah, yeah. So I agree. All right. Well, in conclusion, what are three books or movies? You can choose movies too. What are three books or movies that you'd recommend to someone wanting to take in some good cult horror? I would recommend um Midsummer. Uh that's a good one. I would recommend The Sacrament, which is found footage horror loosely based not loosely, it's pretty heavily based on the Jonestown incident. And it's, I, it's not one I see recommended enough. So definitely that one. And then probably the girls by Emma Klein. It's not horror. It's more literary, but it's, it's about the Manson girls. Um, but they're they're not the Manson girls. It's fictionalized, but it's very, very, there are a lot of cult vibes in it. (laughs) Cool. Just for, and, and recap, Midsommar, mm-hmm. that is the, the movie directed by Ari Aster, and I can 100% back that up. Uh, dear listeners, if you have not watched this movie, watch this movie yeah. and watch it during the daytime. I, I, would, yes. I would say that. Yes. <laughs> um, the, okay, so Sacrament. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have not seen that, so I'm going to add that to my TBR. It sounds it's, cool. Most people have not actually heard of that one, even like found footage enthusiasts. I don't hear it mentioned much and it it was okay just as a found footage film but the fact that it was based on Jonestown I thought made it a lot more interesting. I also have a goal with ho- hopefully before this year ends that I'm going to finally watch Paranormal Activity. I've never seen it. Oh my gosh, it's so it's good. It's good. <laughs> I I posted one of those you know, those Instagram memes where it, it had, I think, 40 horror films and you're supposed to mark on there the ones that you've yeah. seen. And I literally saw all of them except for Paranormal Activity. Yeah, that it is formative found footage. And it, it I saw it when it came out. I saw it in the theater. 
Um, I wasn't old enough to see it because it was rated R. I had to go. <laughs> I had to go with my friend who was older. He bought the ticket. <laughs> yeah. And I remember it being so scary to me at the time that I stayed like I slept with the lights on and I had like the TV on, too. And that's it's wild to me now because wow. it doesn't scare me now, but it's they do some really cool things with a limited budget. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, I think we all have those movies that maybe we saw when we were younger that now we look back for me, a movie that horrified me, gave me nightmares and made me scared to be home alone. And I was already a teenager by this point, but I hadn't seen a ton of horror, Mm -hmm. but it was the Tom Savini directed remake of Night of the Living Dead. Oh, my God. That one's rough. Um, I'm not big on zombies. They just like don't do it for me. But that one is I think it's a cinematography and the atmosphere of that one that's so rough. Yeah, it creeped me out. And I watched it. I was at a friend's house. Um, actually, so, yeah, I would have been a teenager. I, I think I was in ninth grade. Oh um, and I was at a friend's house. And then we went to one of his friend's house in that neighborhood. I'd never been to this house. And it was a two-story house. It was a pretty big house. And we were mm-hmm. upstairs in his bedroom. And I remember it was in the daytime, but it was a little bit overcast. And upstairs, he had all, all it, was, it was like a hallway that had different rooms and bathrooms, but all of the doors were closed. So the hallway was very dark. And even when you go into the rooms, his bedroom, and then I also went, left his bedroom to go to the bathroom, which was right next to his room. Mm -hmm. And all the blinds were closed and they were like those blackout blinds. No, no. I I remember the fear that was instilled in me. And then later that night I went home and usually it was a Sunday night. On Sunday nights, my mom and my stepdad would always go out to dinner and a movie. I'd get to stay home alone and have the house to myself. And I loved it. Mm -hmm. That night, I did not love it. I was horrified. And I kept thinking that a zombie was, for whatever reason, going to walk out of my parents' room and come kill me in the living room. Ugh, that's awful. (laughs) Yeah. But now I look back and it's like, oh, like, you know, cute, cute little Thomas Gloom, terrified of a silly movie. (laughs) Look how far you've come. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, okay, and then the final one that you recommended was a book by Emma Klein, The Girls. Yes, and like I said, it's literary fiction. It's not horror, but it, there's a lot of Manson stuff in there. And it does play more with the idea of like, how do regular people get pulled into that sort of thing? Because it's um, it's almost like, you know, how in The Great Gatsby, you experience everything from Nick's point of view, even though it's not really about him. It's kind of like that with the girls. There's this this uh, tertiary character that you experience everything through, and she like she meets the the Manson girls and the Manson figure and interacts with them. So that's kind of interesting. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, that sounds cool. And um, I'm gonna give you a trophy because you are officially the first person to come on to the Into the Gloom podcast and use the word tertiary. So thank you. My, my 11th grade English teacher would be crying with joy. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was going to say right. peripheral, but I was like, oh, let's go with tertiary. That's more fun. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm a word nerd. So, oh, yeah, um, yeah. And apparently I'm a poet and didn't know it too. So there you go. Did it. Um, all right. Well, Brianna Morgan, this has been so much fun. But before we end this, I want to give you the opportunity to let um, the dear listeners know where are the best places where they can connect with you and learn more about your your work? 
So I'm pretty much all over the place when it comes to social media. I'm on Twitter as Brie Morgan Books. I'm on Instagram as Brianna Morgan Books. And I'm on TikTok as Brianna Morgan Books. And all of my books are available through Amazon. You can even get them through Kindle Unlimited. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and entering into the gloom with me. And I hope that your career continues to grow and flourish because you really deserve it. And thank you. Um, folks, go out and check out Brie Morgan's stuff. You will not regret it. Thank you. We hope this episode haunts your nightmares. It's been an honor to scare you. Be sure to subscribe and also follow Into the Gloom podcast on Instagram for news on upcoming offerings. Until we meet again, remember to leave a light on. <laughs>